0: Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner podcast,
1: a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today.
0: I'm Whitney Lowe.
1: And I'm Teluca. Welcome,
0: Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Practitioner. Thinking Practitioner.
1: Books of Discovery has been a part of massage therapy education for over 20 years. Thousands of schools around the world teach with their textbooks, e-textbooks and digital resources. Books of Discovery likes to say, learning adventures start here. They see this same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast, and they're proud to support our work knowing we share their mission of bringing the massage and bodywork community enlivening content that advances our profession. So check out their collection of e-textbooks and digital learning
0: resources for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy, and physiology at booksofdiscovery.com, where Thinking Practitioner listeners can save 15% by entering Thinking at checkout. So Till, how are you today?
1: Doing very well. Whitney, how about yourself?
0: I'm doing very well. We have a special guest joining us again today. And who is our guest today?
1: Oh Well, our guest, welcome, Dr. Tina Wang. I'm so glad you could take the time to join us.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Uh, I'll go ahead and introduce you, but then I want to hear a little more about you and your work. You are a board-certified physical medicine and rehabilitation medical doctor with a special focus in the emerging field of fascia, which is how I came across your work. I saw you present at the Fascial Research Congress in Montreal. You are an assistant professor at medical schools in Southern California, and you're on the core faculty for the musculoskeletal curriculum, including the use of ultrasound-based diagnosis and interventions. Your published research focuses on ultrasound characteristics of fascial dysfunction to improve clinical understanding, diagnostics, and treatments of myofascial pain syndromes, Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, and hypermobility spectrum disorders very interesting. You have a private practice. doesn't stop there. You have a private practice where you see people with HEDS or the hypermobility version of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And you're the founder of The Brain Cell, a startup dedicated to evidence-based neurofascial inflammation education for professionals. Wow. It's great to have you here. Anything else you want people to know about uh, you and your work before we get into it?
2: Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, one of, it's been a journey, uh, working Mm. with hypermobile ehlers Stanlos, uh, the population, and I've learned a lot about myself as well as fascia, um, working with this population. It's been, uh, not a, not a boring day goes by (laughs) very interesting group to work with.
1: Very Uh, interesting group, very interesting condition and some interesting, quandaries i mean my um, i'm sorry to interrupt you but i got interested in talking to you about all this and your uh work because it's a puzzle you know people with uh hypermobility tend to be more flexible in their tissues and yet they often have more pain and that is counterintuitive for a lot of people who were trained in a soft tissue approach that emphasizes relaxing or mobility, I think, okay, so if they're relaxing or what do they hurt more? So I hope we get to that, but sorry, back to you, back to your uh, your own journey and your own interest there.
2: Yeah. You know, that that is one of the conundrums that led me to, um, to conduct my research because I would say clinically, um, I'm not seeing that. Clinically, yes, they can bend over, touch the floor, bend their elbows back over 10 degrees in hyperextension, but the tissue is not moving. And passive tissue stiffness is not consistent with what I would see in someone who's very, very glidy mobile. And just to add to that, um, 30%, 25 to 30% of the population has generalized hypermobility. And when you touch their tissue, feels great, feels normal. I wouldn't even think to go checking. And it's oftentimes that I go checking because they say, well, so-and-so in my family has hypermobile EDS. Can you check me? I'm super bendy. And um, under ultrasound examination, when it's not pathologic, when it's just a phenotypic expression, it just occurs naturally in the environment and there's no pathology, um, the tissue looks great. Under ultrasound tissue feels great when you're treating the client or the patient, um, when, it feels great
1: to our hands as manual therapy practitioners. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, and yeah. like, like any other tissue would.
1: Yeah. Can you okay. tell us a little bit about
0: what you would see or, or what, what do you perceive on ultrasound is the distinction between those individuals with the, the different tissue types? How does it look different?
1: And I'm sorry, wait, can I back up one step? Can we just for our audience say what EDS is or what? Yeah, e- that's a good H- idea. EDS is? Yeah. Should we start there? And then let's, let's dive into that question. Yeah. How do you answer that question, Dr. Way?
2: Um, so there are 13 different subtypes um, based on the 2017 uh, noso- uh, nosological classification. So that's how we uh, classify what type of connective tissue um, LR danlos you have. And of those 12, we have known genetic variants, and they're really rare. And they run in families, and we do genetic testing. And on physical examination, there are very, very clear signs that show up. Um, and and those, some of those are very, very wor- worrisome. And that's what we're really, as clinicians, thinking about when we're screening these patients. We don't want to miss, miss some of these subtypes. And then the 13th subtype, which is the overwhelmingly most common one, is the hypermobile type. And that diagnosis is not based off of genetic testing. It's based off a of clinical diagnosis. And um, there are three parts to that diagnosis. Uh, The first part is, are you generally hypermobile? So that's part A. And again, we had already said 30% of the population is generally hypermobile without issues. So Mm -hmm. I've seen that um, occur where, um, and and can you imagine that that's, 30% 30% of the population. So if you're labeling 30% of the population with hypermobile EDS, yeah. that's, that's a, that's, that's huge. Issue. Yeah. Well, and
1: so what, but what is the definition in that case of hypermobile? How are we describing? There's that? It, yeah. It's, there's it's not, a, it's not symptomatic you're saying.
2: Yeah. There's a BITEN score that we use. So there's a cutoff based on age and, uh, uh, gender, uh, assigned at birth, yeah. Um, and so it, then if you do meet that criteria, we have to move on to B and C.
1: Give me a, give me a sense of what the criteria are. Is it the amount, gross amount of movement? Is it uh, what, how do you
2: yeah. determining
1: this 30% are hypermobile, but asymptomatic?
2: Right. So B criteria, that B part is what then is manifesting in the tissue. So systemic manifestations, um, what's the shape of the jaw? What it? What are the heart valves doing? How long is that arm? How long are those spindly fingers? Um, and you can't tell. So when I first started doing this, um, I, I first I wouldn't, I never even thought that I had hypermobile type EDS, and you can't quite tell. I always thought I had short stubby fingers, but you, you need to do measurements. So part of that is we do measurements to be more pre- precise.
1: Okay, I'm learning something already, and I, and I pulling up this file in my own memory, but I don't want to presume anything. There are different proportions to different body parts in this group we're calling hypermobile EDS. And one of them is the longer fingers. And there's some other ones as well.
2: Yeah. And long arms. So um, you wouldn't be able to tell. You just got to, you have to measure. And I never thought I had long arms um, relative to my height.
0: So so let me also backtrack for just a second. When we said, if I was hearing correctly, 30% of the population has hypermobile EDS. Is that correct?
2: Uh, So no, no. Um, 30% of the population has asymptomatic general hypermobility. It is okay, so we're very, just talking about
0: a generalized hypermobility at 30%. Okay, right. that's what I was missing, because I was going to ask, well, how, what was the population that just has hypermobility that may not have the EDS presentation? Yeah, so 30%, 30% is the across the board. Okay, got it.
2: Yeah, yeah, and a very small percent, and it looks like it's maybe about, um, you know, it depends on who's estimating and which study, but it can be as few as 0.2% to as high as 4.5%. Um, and, and so you really can't tell by looking at someone <laughs> if they have that, because I hear that a lot. oh, I'll walk around and now I can see, I can see they have. and well, there's a lot of variables to meet the criteria and um and
1: shape I, or proportion is just one of them, you're right,
2: saying. right. And listening to the heart, the echocardiogram, heart valves, looking at how stretchy the tissue is. So we want it to be stretchy, but mm. not, pulling off because mm-hmm. once it's too hyperextensible,
1: mm-hmm. then we're
2: really suspecting a genetic form or other cutaneous manifestations of pathology that may be, you know, not related to Ehlers-Danlos if it's in a in a um, localized area. So then our, our diagnostic um, framework starts to widen based on if the tissue is way too stretchy. And we check on the neck and on, on the wrist. Um, and then the the um, one of the most common ones almost across the board, every single patient that I see has are uh, piezogenic papules. So you have them stand and out of the connective tissue, the fascia of the heel, the fat herniates out and you'll feel the little papules. Of
1: and the heel, you- of oh. the, he- the fat pad on the heel, okay.
2: Right, and so the last part of the diagnostic um, framework then is the most difficult. And that one's the exclusionary uh, diagnosis. And that's really looking at uh, forms of neuromuscular conditions that can mimic or co-occur with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos. And that that one is challenging. Um, part of my background is uh, extensive neuromuscular training. So even though I'm not sub-specialized in it, um, I've worked long enough um, in neuromuscular medicine, trained underneath neuromuscular uh, medicine uh, physicians, and then now I have the privilege of working with them. That um, I can identify—I may not know what to do, <laughs> but I can say that's there's something we're missing here, and we need additional workup. And that I have a very low threshold for. So I, I'm not so much interested in it. if you have hypermobile EDS, great, but I am worried if we're Going straight to that, and we're missing some other uh, diagnoses that needs extensive workup, and and that's where I'm really um, thinking. Uh, what I'm thinking about when a patient comes in is let's make sure we're not missing anything.
1: And as a so you've given us a really clear and detailed answer about diagnostic criteria and this process you go through in as a physician. Now as a as a massage therapist, say. What would be important for them to know at this point? what, what would they be what were some red flags or uh, things to begin to suspect this kind of condition?
2: Well, you know i I have a twofold answer to that. Um, yeah. My referrals from massage therapists have almost always been spot on. so you you get yeah. referrals from physios, from other medical doctors, from whomever, specialists. Um, and when they come from massage therapists, they're almost always like, yep, you you have Ehlers-Danlos. And um, what um, it is, is, it's the tissue quality. It feels like a non-scientific term, mush. And it's this uniform, spongy mush. You feel like it, there's going to be liquid that comes out of them when you palpate. Um, that is almost, um, always there. Not, not, um, not all the time. Some, some of my patients are very, very thin. And so, yes, it's there, but it makes palpation a little bit more challenging because there's such little tissue to palpate through. Mm -hmm. Um, but that, that would be really, um, one of the, when I receive referrals from massage therapists, that's what they're feeling. Um, And they're feeling this lack of glide in there too. Just something is not quite right.
1: Okay. So that's the paradox of the mush and the lack of glide. I don't know if it's paradox to you, but that seems paradoxical to me, but no, I know exactly what you're talking about in terms of the feel of the tissue feel, but then you say and also a lack of glide. What's that? How does that manifest?
2: So, right, so th- this goes back to that question um, that Whitney was asking before yeah. um, we got into the definition. Yeah. Um, and so that is what I noticed um, on examination was that the tissue when we're palpating and assessing for glide, it's it's not there. And they're describing stiffness. And my own experience is I feel so much better when I stretch. And um, so the old adage that uh, if you have hypermobile EDS and you cannot stretch is a complete uh, hogwash because I've heard from your other episodes, there's a million different types of stretching. You can't lump that into one category. Um, And so they're telling me that um, they feel stiff, the tissue is not gliding and it seems to be spongy and uh, uniform in in, um, density all the way through. So um, then you have these conversations with your colleagues and they say, well, you don't know what you're talking about. They're super bendy. They can hyperextend. And I say, well, okay, then what, you know, I, you always wait around for someone else to do the study. It's like, well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove it or let's at least look. So with the ultrasound, um, of course, with Antonio's study, Antonio Stecco's study of the sternocleidomastoid, very mm-hmm. easy area to uh, study. So he encouraged me to look there. And so sure this and- is
1: I think, 2014, 2016, something like that, a study where he found changes or differences in sternocleidomastoid fascia in people with and without pain, if I'm remembering that correctly.
2: Yes. And it was thicker in those with pain. Yeah, and so I was certain I was going to see something similar. I just didn't think that it would be so profoundly thicker. So he showed greater than 1.4 centimeters. I found at um, um, that it was actually 1.8 for Ehlers-Danlos. So quite a big, uh, a, a big difference, significantly. And um, I have elastography, so that measures stiffness of tissue. So you put the probe on for the ultrasound and they'll show you relative stiffness. And um, it, it seemed to be pretty uniform in the L.R. Stamos population, which I, I didn't expect to find that. I was pretty open. Like, what are we going to find here? In subjects with neck pain who were not hypermobile, um, there was a soft softening in the deep fascia relative to a increased thickening in the muscle and the muscle muscle stiffening was not uniform. So it was this um non-uniform muscle stiffening with a relative softening in the deep fascia that I did not expect to find. I always thought, you know, following, Everyone's work in the fascial field that I I thought I'd see stiffening in that deep fascia. That must be where it's coming from, um, and that that is always a humbling experience. What do I do with this? Is this contrary to what we believe? Is this even publishable? Do I even want to? Do I even want to send this email to Antonio telling him this is what I found?
1: This is what caught my ear in Montreal. You are coming up with non-intuitive findings around stiffness. You're finding that they're less stiff in people with pain and and more uniform in people with eds was that how did that contrast with what you were trying to figure out you're trying to figure out whitney's question like what are the tissue level differences in hypermobility is that correct
2: yes Yes. And then in in people with pain too, because I'm not seeing that, right? When they do those elastography questions, they're measuring the stiffness of the muscle. Everyone's paying attention to the muscle and the muscle is extremely important. It's mostly connective tissue. We have to look at its relationship to that deep fascia.
1: And under our hands, I mean, I can just imagine or feel what you're describing, the uniformity uh, the sponginess you called it on one hand, and the EDS folks, and less uniform, uh, and a bigger difference between muscle and deep fascia on the in pain non EDS people. So I'm just I can just picture or feel how that would be. And you said that was a surprise to you,
2: right? I, I expected the uh, the densification or the what um, it that is defined as is an aggregate a non-functional aggregation of the extracellular matrix content, including what Antonio Stecco studies, the hyaluronin. And so these um, pathologic non-functional aggregations then are stickier. And so I thought, sure enough, the sticky glue should be stiff. Not necessarily, there are two different properties, gliding and actual stiffness. and, and that was a real, a real surprise to me. And what I really learned is that we cannot separate muscle from deep fascia. We have to look at, and then superficial fascia. What is that? How is that functioning as a unit? And then what are the additional properties in terms of uh, gliding um, and um, even nerve content that might become pathologic over time?
1: Yeah. Whitney, I'm thinking this is – you had a question that you were pondering. I'm wondering if this is a good time for it.
0: Uh, yeah, if I can slip in another one before that, too. You know? Sure, like,
1: yeah. Let's just, walk us through it.
0: Yeah, and this is kind of like for personal clarification here, too, to some degree, because this is something I have always heard for a long time when I was you know, trying to understand and, and grapple with some of the things. Both my mom and her brother had uh, EDS at a pretty significant level. Does And when we talked about the diagnostic criteria, we were told early on that this sometimes does skip generations. Is that necessarily true that that does skip generations in terms of that genetic um, disposition? Or is that is that not what you have found currently?
2: Um, it, it does. So it's autosomal dominant. Hmm. So this is going to clarify it. It gets technical. So it's autosomal dominant. So meaning if one of the parent has a copy of this, then uh, the likelihood of the children having it is a, is 50%. But just to throw a wrench in this whole concept is that it seems to not be one gene. It seems to be maybe an epigenetic type phenomenon where a group of genes play together. And so it has variable expression. Yeah. So that means from one generation to the next, sister to sister, mother to brother to however you want to look at it, it's going to manifest differently and it's going to be more severe in one versus the other. And I think, and many of my colleagues really think along the same line that it is the environment, it's the epigenetics that are really turning on the phenotypic, the manifestation symptoms. Uh Mm -hmm. And so it may not be that um, you don't have it, it may be that maybe it's mild enough that you don't notice. Um,
0: well, there's a lot of things that I do notice. You know, the the you know skin quality, the hypermobility, the long limbs and fingers, and all those kinds of things. Uh, I think do pop up and are characteristic in both myself and my sisters. So, uh, but what didn't pop up was the you know, extreme bruising and the, the connective tissue damaged so easily. And so we got this safe stuff, if you can look at it that way, that's, you know, not some of the things that we saw, you know, with my mom and her brother uh, frequently. But, um, you know, that, this does, when you were talking about the tissue types with what we feel during palpation, that definitely made a lot of sense in terms of what I experienced in, in working with her frequently too, with the the quality of those tissues. And that kind of gets into what this other question that we were Pondering, Till and I had been talking about this a a good bit, that trying to sort of grapple with this issue around densification and the myofascial pain. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts if you think there is – we noticed, or you noticed at least, I think, in your study saying that there was a correlation there. But do you think there is some kind of cause-effect relationship between those? Because we often hear that, like, is that because the densification, because there is pain or is there densification – you know, or pain because there's densification, et cetera. Do you you see any kind of cause effect relationship there?
2: So it seems to be, and those are really difficult to prove. Um, So in a a separate study that I did across the board of all different patients with myofascial pain, when I, um, and I still treat this way. So I will, um, I will sequence the patient uh, using the STECO methodology And then I inject into the three different fascial layers as described by the shoulder study. And what they had done was so interesting. They took hypertonic saline, which is an irritant, and they injected into the superficial fascia, the deep fascia, into the muscle. And then they had their subjects characterize and describe the pain. So I thought, oh boy, this is so interesting. So basically if I can get the patient to describe the type of pain they're having, then I can inject into that layer with saline. And the saline will wash out those inflammatory mediators that we find in these quote unquote trigger point areas. And it will also serve to manipulate the tissue much like you would with the finger, but I'm going to do that with saline. And, and I, um, learned how to do these injections around nerves? We call those hydrodissections of nerves, of entrapped nerves. So-
0: Can I pause just a second and ask mm-hmm. this before we go on? Because I'm I'm really curious about this. Some of those fascial layers are so thin. How do you get precise with those injections into those specific layers?
2: Under ultrasound uh, guidance mm-hmm. with itty bitty tiny needles. And that Mm. I I learned from my friend, Kentaro Onishi. He likes to inject stem cells through itty bitty tiny needles. Wow. And and it's for patient comfort. And um, I I was always inspired by that. So I use the tiniest needle possible. Mm. And we go into these layers. And um, yes, it's challenging to see under ultrasound, but yes, you can. Uh, With good skills, you can see where you're injecting. And um, in this uh, study, I found that 75% of myofascial pain, so when I inject into that deep fascia, um, yes, in combination with other layers, like it might be deep fascia, superficial fascia, deep fascia muscle, depending on the point. Um, but 75% of the pain seems to resolve after I inject that deep fascia in combination with other layers. So it seems Mm. like a lot of it is coming from the deep fascia. The superficial fascia was involved in various combinations 55% of the time. So that means we have to treat that superficial layer, that in-between layer. And then um, if we talk about only muscle, and this is a very controversial statement. Um, When we published this paper, it, it was extremely difficult. It, it was so controversial because of the um, the trigger points that are done. So a lot of uh, physicians in my field do a lot of trigger points. And then a lot of physios do the dry needling. And um, you never wanna see anything that comes out against what you're doing. And muscle was only involved alone, muscle alone, because in in combination with these other two, uh, tissues, yes, forty-three percent of the time you you need to treat the muscle. But if you are only treating muscle itself, mm-hmm. it's only five percent of the time that you're actually adequately treating patients.
1: You're saying that was a uh, controversial finding because it went against the narratives that we typically use of muscle being the source of a lot of that nociceptive. Right. Yeah.
2: And, uh, and if we you're finding getting
0: results from injecting those what mm-hmm. what is this supposed mechanism of pain management or pain relief from that what what do you suppose is is relieving that pain from the injection
2: i I think it's twofold I think it's the actual manipulation of the tissue so if the um, there are uh, glycosaminoglycans, of which hy- hyaluronin is a type that is causing some kind of mechanical dysfunction, stickiness, then we're opening up that tissue. Um, and just like you would do with your finger gliding, um, mm-hmm. a manipulation of tissue. And then the last part is really washing out any inflammatory mediators that are very, very, very likely present. Mm-hmm. Um, the even digging through the literature over the last ten years, already the histologists were calling fibroblasts immune immune cells. They were primary sentinel immune cells and it 's just so interesting that um, I was talking to one of my colleagues yesterday, why isn 't it that us as physicians, why have we not been introduced to this? Why is what I do uh, recognizing ehlers danlos as this real uh, manifestation of neuro um, inflammatory, fascial inflammatory changes. Why is that so avant-garde? Why am I so fringe? When 10 years ago, we already started, the histologists already started identifying these concepts:
1: mm-hmm. that inflammation was involved in those kind of local, locally sensitive or painful spots, and that changing inflammation could actually change that. Experience as well, or that maybe that was a mechanism what you were doing. Now I want to make sure we get the right reference to what that study you're just describing. Uh, Is this is the is the study you just described with the reduction in pain? Is that is that a published study? Is that something we can reference? It's
2: open access, and I'll send you a a link.
1: Awesome, we'll get that.
2: Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, and then those
1: those numbers. sorry, those numbers you gave seventy five percent of pain related to the deep fascia. That was a Percentage of patients who reported an improvement in pain, I presume.
2: They all did immediately after injection. That's how I measured, um, was this the tissue, was this the correct tissue layer to treat? And then I do a a pain pressure threshold. Is that the same or did we improve?
1: Okay, great. I look forward to reading that through. That's fascinating.
2: Yeah, that paper um, is different. Um, that one I, I did. So traditionally in the Ehlers-Danlos population we'll do a headache protocol Botox injection which uh, horrified me. Uh, and there are case reports as well as anecdotally of patients uh, who became destabilized and ended up having uh, cranial cervical fusion. That, this is not to scare people. They're very rare. Very rare. You know, we we had a discussion in my EDS echo group. That's the professional group that uh, meets once a month. We meet uh, practitioners around the world and it's hosted by the Eller Stanlow Society. And we've even had conversations about muscle relaxants in this group. And yes, there are horror stories and there are few and far be, be, between. Um, the important thing to know is that every Ehlers-Danlos patient is an n of one? You can't make sweeping judgments as a whole. Like you do not do stretching, you do not do deep tissue. It's right. no, that is your n of one, and you move slowly. That and that's that's the the principle when treating these patients. Just move slowly. Get to know them. Get to know their tissue before you start hacking away. Before you start throwing tons of drugs at them. Um, get to know the person, get to know the tissue, get to know how they respond. Um, and so in that study, um, I noticed that they all had a, a very certain type of patterning, Very uh, a cervical dystonia, not severe. And, and to your audience who doesn't know what that means, it's, it's a patterning that happens into a neck, a twisting, and they're kind of locked there neurologically. And so there is a Botox protocol for cervical dystonia. And I partnered up with one of uh, my colleagues who is an expert in cervical dystonia. um, And we sequenced the patients fascially. And then we identified using standard cervical dystonia protocol that most neurologists use. And uh, lo and behold, they all kind of lined up the fascial Line dysfunction with the dystonia protocol, how you would choose which muscles based on rotation. And uh, these pa- these few patients that I followed improved, and the thickness of that sternocleidomastoid also decreased. And their pain. With
1: simply with, and the only intervention was the Botox injection. Mm-hmm. Is that right?
2: Right, right. And into Very muscle. Very interesting. Into, into muscle. muscle. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So So just my simple layman's understanding, the Botox essentially uh, relaxes the muscle at a very, it eliminates the motor neuron input or the effect of the motor neuron. So you have complete relaxation of the muscle. Is that the primary mechanism you think that's that's
2: causing that? And it's low dose. So I'm not using that full large dose. I'm just using low dose so that we provide a more, a, a balance to the system. Um, okay. and, and then why does it keep recurring? Well, I really, um, you know, I, I'm a workaholic. I can't stop working and I love what I do. So I took a course from Mary mastery so that I wouldn't keep working, <laughs> take a course to, <laughs> <laughs> to occupy my schedule. And it was one of the best courses I've ever taken. Um, and she's a pediatric physiotherapist. And she started talking about patternings that she's noticed in these children. And I started paying attention to, uh, to these, some of these patternings in my patients. And I started to realize, boy, um, you know, I think Ehlers-Danlos is neurodevelopmental. They have very similar patterns to how they're firing the muscles. And um, with this population, it's really about maintenance and staying ahead. It's not going to be about curative, but how do we help you with a maintenance program to live the best life possible, which I think can be a wonderful life. You just have to figure out how to stay on top of everything.
1: What's What are some of the highlights of uh, a maintenance program, or especially as it relates to manual therapy? Does manual therapy belong in that picture? And if so, how?
2: Um, absolutely. Um, one of the things that uh, has come to the forefront, especially with the leaders in the, LR, the EDS Society, is mm-hmm. the neurodevelopmental uh, neurodivergence? Um, there is a high rate of that in LR Stanlos. And after that pediatric course, I started paying attention because neurodevelopmental issues and neurodivergence—they're classified—is the same thing. And um, I started paying attention. And what I find. And this is just a supposition, which um, I'm going to, I'm in the process of writing a book because you can't publish this kind of stuff. It's, it cannot be proven. And Uh one of the things that I, I I feel strongly about is that um, this starts first as a neurodivergence. So meaning we're, we're born as autistics. We're born with ADHD. We're born with our sensory issues. And now we have to fit into this world. And maybe Mm we know that neurodivergence has strong inheritance. So maybe our parents are pretty traumatized and they can't provide for us skill sets and tools. And now we're we're set free in this world. And from a very early age, we're making adaptations. And that nervous system is going crazy. And where it's going to show up first is that superficial fascia, that autonomic nervous system. Um, So absolutely manual therapy has a huge role because if we want to start to affect upstream where we think things are coming from, that touch is so crucial. That therapeutic relationship that I know you both talk about so much is absolutely crucial. And if we don't have that, we don't even have a starting point to help patients.
1: Wonderful. And the touch being a primary channel, of experience in that realm, saying is it, in that process, what a fascinating idea! That process of becoming, of development, being a process of becoming neurotypical, you could say, or or developing out of a state that's more uh, divergent, and the in, the actual interaction we have through touch could be a part of that for all of us. Did I get right. that right?
2: Yes, yes. And I, I, you know, I can speak as my, my own experience as a a neurodivergent person with autism, human connection is craved, but so difficult to access. Mm -hmm. And it's through these therapeutic relationships that we can start to tell that person, that body, that brain, that spirit, here is a person who can be with you.
1: nice that's what that's what our hands say when we're doing yeah we're listening to our clients when we're sensing what's going on when we're getting the feedback from both their tissues and their awareness essentially that's what our hands are saying we can be with you this is good yeah
0: I want to ask to, to backtrack for a moment too and, and back to when you were talking about some of the things that may be happening or occurring and again not to sort of scare people or you know, over concern them but a lot of manual therapists, who might have clients coming to them with EDS, this is frequently gonna be their first exposure to it. And are, uh, I was curious if you've got things that you would recommend in particular that people really think about or be particularly cautious about when somebody comes in and just, let's say, puts on a health history form, I have EDS, You know what kinds of things should they be thinking about there or being careful of in their, in their treatment with them?
2: Um, right, great question. So, um, and I, I've been there. I've, I've been there on the airing portion. Uh Um, so they will get huge autonomic dysfunction and response. So what is that? That is the nervous system going crazy. They will report fevers, chills, catatonia. I didn't wake up for 12 hours. That that's always a great phone call. My, my heart is exploding when I hear that. Hmm. Um,
0: no, you're saying this is after a, a treatment, or when is this
2: after, after the experience? Treatment.
0: Oh, really? Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Oh.
2: yeah. Um, huh. And uh, so the the biggest one is fevers, and that that will be your your uh, biggest clue is when the client says, "Oh, I had uh, fevers," and maybe the temperature goes up, but it it may not. But mm-hmm. it it's in the body; it's subjective. They feel it. Um, that's a huge clue that this might be someone with a pathologic hypermobility that you're working with.
0: And so this is just because the autonomic nervous system is just kind of getting stirred up, so to speak, is that kind of what's doing this?
2: Yes. Yes. Um, And I think there's what I, I see in this population is there's a much higher sensitivity to interoception and exteroception. So these nerves are very sensitive. And if you're going to bombard them and you're going to come in, I I train uh, with osteopaths. So if you come in with your hubris and I'm going to change this tissue and I'm going to heal you, I'm going to fix you, Um, I, I will tell you personally, when someone lays hands on me and they come into the room with that, I, my, my body is screaming. I'm about to run out that door. Uh And I, I always joke that I like novice practitioners because novice practitioners come in like, I don't know. And I love, I love that because my nervous system senses safety. Uh My nervous system senses, this is not going to be a person who's going to hash at my tissue and, and tame it. Because my tissue is not tameable.
0: Yeah. How about you, the fact uh, to that you it? Till, let me uh, go ahead. One yeah. more thing, real quick. You referenced a couple terms there. Um, Till and I did talk about this in some previous episodes, but in case people missed that, can you just briefly go over what you mentioned about interoception and exteroception for people to recognize what that means in terms of what someone might express uh, in, a, in a session environment?
2: right so uh i I always love this this is i say um oh you have eds when i'm down at the foot or i'm injecting to the foot and they say oh i feel that in my right shoulder oh man i should check you for eds um Mm -hmm. so that's the interoception to be able to feel what's happening within that body Mm -hmm. and then the exteroception is that sensory processing stuff the light coming in the colors that those papers are not perfectly organized. And and so we see um, a high rate of Ehlers-Danlos in the ADHD population, in the autistic population, and then vice mm -hmm. versa. We see a lot of ADHD and autism in the hypermobile spectrum disorders, Ehlers-Danlos disorders. um, And a large part of the the existence and... uh, experience of these people are this huge amount of interoception and exteroception. And we often like to um, mislabel and type autistics as um, not having empathy. It's huge amounts of empathies, uh, of empathy. It's just we don't actually understand why you're having that emotion. So I can see, oh, you're angry. Mm-hmm. I said something wrong. I have no idea why you're angry and then I'll mm-hmm. I'll need some explanation.
1: Interesting, yeah. That's a really helpful distinction too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just I just want to uh, flag Ruth Werner who actually, I told her that we were speaking. She uh, writes a pathology column for Massage and Body Work, et cetera. She actually had that question about dysautonomia and EDS. They seem to be co-occurring and she's wondering about the mechanism. I think you just described that. You're talking about the process of Of uh, development being a somatic one that includes both the the tissue qualities and the relational interactions and the nervous system regulation all as an integrated whole. I think I think that's what you're describing here for us,
2: right? And then in terms of tech, if we get a little bit more nitty gritty into like histopathology, uh, fibroblasts have released neuropeptides that speak with uh, uh, surrounding nerves. And the nerves and the fibroblasts release neuropeptides that speak with the immune cells in the area, macrophages, mast cells. um, And they're all in crosstalk in these areas surrounding vessels. And so now you get a systemic effect and you can't tease out one over the other.
1: Hopefully a systemic, well, a systemic effect that could go either way. It could be calming or it could be irritating accelerating. But their hope is we find a way to do our hands-on work that leverages those uh, salutary uh, systemic effects from the local occurrences that are probably happening. Okay, here's another great question from Ruth. She said, this is just a quote, uh, from my little pointy-headed perspective, she says, it seems like diagnoses of EDS are more common than they used to be. Is this because of more sensitive diagnostic tools or something happening to us genetically? Or am I wrong? She says.
2: Um, All of the above. (laughs) All of the above. So I I would say first uh, to tackle that question is um, uh, EDS society. We will meet, you know, every so often and uh, reassess how we're categorizing patients. Hmm. Um, and and then there's a a strong need for patient-centric diagnoses. What is it that this patient needs? I'll, I'll get into arguments with people, and they don't meet the diagnostic criteria. Okay, but what does this person need? Because there's a lot of gray area in diagnoses. I can make something fit into that box, or I can make it not fit in that box, depending on how I frame it. And so what is it that this person needs? Does this person need reassurance that, boy, this is not the source of my issue? Or does this patient in front of me need this diagnosis so they can all begin to understand the world around them and move forward in their healing journey? Um, So part of our discussions in the EDS echo is how do we make our diagnoses and care patient centric? And so then you'll see an increase. Um, There's also increase in awareness with advocacy. So me coming on here, um, previously in the past, I was not comfortable letting people publicly know that I have hypermobile stamos because of all the stigma. So does that mean you can't work? You're going to call call off? What, what does that mean? Right. And I didn't feel that I was representative of the population because my patients are quite ill and they have a lot of functional difficulties. And it wasn't until knowing that I had comorbid autism and how that or co occurring autism, the preferred um, uh, language now, um, that I started to really see how that overshadowed and um, framed my experience of having Ehlers-Stanlos. You know, I, I, I've moved into a different direction from many of my patients. Some of them come in like this too: is I'm not interested in a diagnosis. From a very young age, um, I, I had doctors telling me I was crazy. And I decided um, that I'll just figure it out myself. And how is it relevant that I wake up in pain every day? I wake up in pain every day. I'm going to go work. Um, and so I know that my experience is very different from many of the patients who come in needing a framework to understand their world. But once I had this knowledge of my autistic experience as a person with ehlers Stanlos, Um, living with co-occurring autism, I started to realize that I had a very valid advocacy um, point of view as well, that there are many people living like I do who may be lost in their understanding of the world who cannot even begin to conceptualize what it is to deal with their chronic pain issues if their relationships are so confusing. Um, and so that was one of the impetus for me coming out and saying, okay, I, I have this condition too. And uh, people who have co-occurring autism with hypermobile EDS have an actually larger burden of disease, meaning we have yeah. more of that dysautonomia. We have more of that um, immune dysfunction. We have tons of allergies. I can't eat anything. Sometimes if I look at that bread, my stomach starts hurting. Um, And so that's the impetus is that more and more of us are coming out speaking up in the public forum. Um, And then the last piece is the environmental piece. I think we live in a cesspool. We are destroying our environment. The foods we eat are horrendous. And if we're putting plastic particles into our environment and into our foods from a very young age, what does that do phenotypically if you're predisposed to this stuff? Mm-hmm. Uh, we, yeah. we were watching a, a news art article uh, segment and my nine-year-old was disgusted. The nine-year-old knew to be disgusted by what we're doing to our environment. And I, across the board from my colleagues, we seem to all feel the same, that it's environmental. Mm-hmm.
1: It's such uh there's so much pain in the background, I think, for all of us about what this, the state of the physical world and the environmental world that it's hard to it's hard to separate that out. And then there's the direct medical uh developmental effects. And I just I just want to take a second and thank you though for sharing your journey and your story and just it's added another level of my appreciation of your your work, your inquiry. Into both what works for you, but then also trying to understand the mechanisms in a way that we can all learn from that and uh, influence what we're doing with people with hypermobility issues, EDS, but also other other clients as well. So there's a very human element to what you're describing. Absolutely, I think, yeah, absolutely. And I you, think you
0: have such a unique perspective about that 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 lets people really recognize and see so much more looking at it from both the clinician and the experiencer. Uh, both, I think, that's a a tremendous gift that you have given everybody. So thank you again so much for that.
2: Yeah. I just want to thank you for the work you do. Um, and your, this, this platform you have is advocacy and it's phenomenal.
1: Thank you for Mm -hmm. taking the time. Any, any other thoughts you want to leave us with, uh, Dr. Wang, we'll call it a day.
2: Um, just go slow. <laughs> when you yeah. meet your Ehlers-Danlos patient, go slow and form that connection because that connection is is just a lifeline for them.
1: That is the key thought. And I loved what you said about the beginning therapist sometimes being uh, more receptive to that. Yeah, that's I mean. interesting. Yeah, that's great.
0: Mm-hmm. All right.
1: What do you think, Whitney? Should yeah. we
0: Close it up. I think so. Yeah. That was a, a fascinating dive into this. And we may um hopefully if that's okay, call you back to explore some of these things in greater detail at some point later down the road as well. Because uh it certainly has opened up a lot of questions and other things for me to think about along these lines.
1: I have a little mind map here with bubbles headed off in every direction and more little yeah. avenues to explore. So thank you for that expansive right. process here. Yeah. Okay, our closing sponsor today, Handspring Publishing. When I was looking for a publisher for a book that I wanted to write, I was fortunate enough to have ended up with two offers, one from a large international media conglomerate and the other from Handspring, which at that time was just a small publisher in Scotland run by four people with a love of great books and our field. To this day, I'm glad I chose to go with Handspring as not only did they help me make the books I wanted to share with you, the Advanced Myofascial Technique series, But their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional-level books, written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness.
0: And Handspring was recently joined with Jessica Kingsley Publishers' Integrative Health Singing Dragon imprint, where their amazing impact does continue. So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check out their list of titles and be sure to use the code TTP at checkout for a discount. And thank you again, Handspring, for supporting the podcast. And we do thank all of our sponsors. You can stop by our sites for show notes, transcripts, and any other kind of extras over there. You can find that on my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com. And Till, where can people
1: find that on yours? Advanced-trainings.com. If there are questions or things you want to hear us talk about, email us at info at the Thinking practitioner. Look for us on social media under our names. My name remains Till Luca. Whitney, yours. And you can find me over there on my name as well through uh, Whitney Lowe.
0: And you can, uh, if you will, rate us on Apple Podcasts as it does help other people find the show. That's very helpful for us. And you can, uh, of course, hear us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you happen to listen. So please do share the word and tell a friend. And uh, thank you again, Dr. Wang, so much for being with us today. This was a delightful conversation.
1: Great. And with Dr. Wang, where can people find out more about you, your work, work? What would you like to direct them towards?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so with uh, the Brain Cell uh, Seminars, mm-hmm. we are hosting um, hands-on courses, interdisciplinary, and people can find us there too. And I'm uh, co-hosting the courses with Claire Frank Physio. And if you go to the website, which um, I'll share uh, with you, um, after the podcast, they can we'll make um,
1: sure that's in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: They mm-hmm. can take a look there. Okay.
1: Well, thanks again. Thanks again, Whitney. Thanks again for duck and Dr. Wang.
2: Yeah. All right.